Don't show them all the secrets behind there. All sorts of goodies. Think I'm joking. All right, hey, everybody. This is uh, one of my favorite Sundays is when we get to kind of do some extra special stuff within the service. And this is actually one of the services like that today. Um, I'm, I'm, I haven't forgot back there. Someone's waving me down because I knew I, they thought I was going to forget. But we're going to do one thing before we do that, all right? So come back in because I want you to be a part of this. We are going to introduce some new members today. Yes. Give it up for James and Tammy Childress. You guys can come on down. All right, I'm going to read you guys three questions. Hopefully you know the answers. Okay, this is like the quiz. I'm I'm just kidding. But it's a charge to you guys, and then there's a charge for the church, all right? Do you agree with the vision, doctrine, and practice of liberty as stated in the membership handbook? Will you accept the duties of membership as outlined in the handbook? And do you agree to minister to the body of Christ by serving in ministry at liberty? All right. Then I have a charge for the church. Will you pray for and edify our new members and fulfill all the duties of membership toward them? All right. Give it up for the children, sis. All right. Now we are going to release the children to start believe it or not their christmas practice musical all right so they can head out they'll be taking some social distancing observations and different things like that yep what are the ages on that it i've i've it's changed the last year or so so help me out justice All right, 4 to 10 normally. If you're 11, 12, 12, 13, 15. Job, come on, this is your chance, buddy. (laughs) All right. Um, Before we begin, one, I want to acknowledge our brothers and sisters in Belize. They are joining us on the live stream. They're from Central America. We've done a lot of missionary work there. And they are, um, the whole country is, is back down in, uh, in a lockdown of sorts. So they can't meet in groups of, of more than um, nine or ten. So they're not going to be able to meet as a church for a few weeks in terms of all of them gathering together. So um, Pastor Smith has encouraged his church uh, to join us online. Um, so Pastor Smith, also the other pastors that we've worked with, Pastor um, West, Pastor Ed, and their churches, Elohim Community Church, Libertad Baptist Church, Koinonia Ministries, and many other pastors and ministries. We've been uh, privileged to partner with them. Uh, we greet you all. Thanks for joining us and being a part of Worship in the Lord this morning. Yeah. And we're standing with you all. We love you guys. Um, continue to press on, stand firm. Uh, this message uh, is in part for you today as well as for all of us. Let's turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We're going to pick it up in verse 17. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, 
We endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the privilege of being able to worship with the saints. Thank you, Lord, for the Childresses and their partnering uh, with the members of this church and with this church and worshiping you together and doing ministry together and doing life together. Lord, thanks for our brothers and sisters in Belize. Uh, let them know um, that they are dear to us, that we love them, that we stand with them, that we support them. Be with them, God. Continue to, to provide supernaturally uh, for their needs, God. Time and time again, God, you come through. We thank you for that. And Lord, help us to see your word, what it has to say to us today. Give us ears to hear. Give us heart, a heart to receive uh, the word and let it be planted, planted deeply, uh, that nothing or no one might snatch it away, God. Let it bear much, much fruit. Amen. All right. I want to talk for a second about Paul and him actually writing the letter of the Thessalonians. Have you ever thought about how letters were written in the first century? You probably have an idea that there was a scribe of some sort, which is true. But a lot of times when we think about it, or if you haven't given it much thought, we think he like retreated to a study and sat down at a desk. And there's, we kind of have like this, um, almost like Thomas Kincaid picture or something like that. You know, this nice little beautiful setting and maybe there's like a little tiny oil lamp and he's, he's dipping his, you know, little, little feather pen in to write out the letter. That, that's not the case. They didn't have desks back then. All right, it would have been written, um, and whoever was writing it, it would have been written in their lap. Using uh, a parchment paper that Paul very likely, and some of his letters specifically indicate, um, he would transcribe it. So there'd be a scribe, a amanuensis would be the proper term, and he would, he would dictate it, they'd write it down, but here's what would happen actually, this is interesting. For most letters back then, the scribe would write it, and then, I don't know about you, but if I dictated something, I'd kind of like to look it over, especially a, a letter of importance. So he would... <clears throat> he would probably have looked over the rough draft and potentially made some corrections, tweaked things a little bit, adjusted them to make sure exactly what he wanted to say was communicated to them. This would potentially go back and forth and you might have a number of rough drafts, believe it or not. A letter to the Thessalonians would likely take a few days. 
from beginning to end. A letter like that to the Romans would have taken a week, maybe two. Uh, it, that would have cost thousands of dollars in today's money. You'd have to pay for the secretary, the parchments. The preferred method back then for, for a book, a smaller book of sorts, was a scroll. But the codex, which is our modern book, where you flip pages, uh, is a Christian development. Christians were attached to the Codex. Why? Well, if you gather up all four Gospels and you want to put them in one scroll, guess what? Doesn't fit. Uh, the scrolls were about 12 feet long. The Gospels were longer than 12 feet. So if you wanted them together, the only possible way to do that was with what they call the Codex, which is what we would call a book. But the Christians were actually the ones to invent that. The same thing would happen if you wanted to put all the letters of Paul in one book. It wouldn't fit on a scroll, but it would fit all in a codex. Um, here's the thing. It was normal operating procedure when someone wrote a letter to produce another copy for their own files. Which kind of makes sense, because I've always wondered, man, there's a lot of rich theology in, in every book of the Bible. Like, it, it would be, I don't know, you know, back in the early days before, like, autosave was a thing on computers, and some of you younger people not, might not remember it, but some of us older people remember losing, having typed something and not having hit save and losing very important documents. It was very crushing, and you'd always know it in the computer lab at college when that just happened to someone, because there'd usually be, like, a string of profanities coming from someone sitting behind some computer. And it happened to me, thankfully not the profanities. <clears throat> so they'd make a backup copy of sorts. In fact, it wasn't unusual to produce the copy that you were going to send and then produce another copy that you would send a different route. One by sea, one by land, to make sure the letter reached its destination. I mean, a letter like the Thessalonians, that's pretty important, right? You don't, you don't want, you know, the giant wave on the, on the ship to come up. Oh, there goes the letter to the Thessalonians. <clears throat> so, it's very possible that Paul had three copies made to begin with. One for his own personal records. And that would be nice if he's writing Second Thessalonians to be able to reference what he wrote in First Thessalonians. And then one that he might have sent one way, and then one he might have sent another way. It's very possible. Which is very interesting when you start to think about what that means regarding the original letters or the autographs, as we might call them, and inerrancy of Scripture, right? I mean, you would have three originals, not just one original, potentially more. That's how most letters were written in the first century. Very likely, that's how Paul's letters were, were written as well. One of the things I want us to take note of when we're, when we're reading through 1 Thessalonians, and it can be a little challenging, even though we do take it, you know, sometimes three or four verses, sometimes more than that, um, to, to forget the overall picture of the letter. Uh, I feel like 1 Thessalonians should be known as, like, it's like a very caring and affectionate letter. Think about what we, just in the small passage we just read, look at some of the language he uses 
verse 17 of chapter 2. We endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. I mean, he could have just said, hey, we tried to see you. No, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire. I mean, he, he, he's trying to get back to them. He wants to see them. He cares about them. Verse 18, we wanted to come to you. He says it again. Verse 19, look at this. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting? He's talking about the Thessalonians. That's some high praise there. In verse 20, he makes it clear, for you are our glory and joy. And then if you look at chapter 3, verse 5, he says, when I could bear it no longer. I mean, it's like eating them up that he doesn't know how they're doing. When I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith. Chapter 3, verse 5. So Paul, I mean, he truly cares about, about them. Over and over, these first two chapters, and now we're seeing into this third chapter, I mean, this is clear. And brothers and sisters, it is good for people to know they are loved and cared for. You can't say it too much to other people. One of the things I, wanna, I, wanna, I want us to see and I actually want to warn us about, is having what I would consider a higher theology than the Bible itself. Now think about that for a second. Is it, higher, is it possible to have a higher theology? Yes, it is. What would, what would that in, end up entailing? A legalism of sorts. There's a theology that the Bible has, and if we try to go above it, we end up with legalism. If we, if we go below it, we end up with progressivism or liberalism. The, 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 the Pharisees fell into this trap, and what did they do? They added rules and regulations to what the Old Testament already had laid out. They thought they had a higher theology. So they had what's called the, the, the written law or the Torah or the Old Testament, as we would refer to it, and then they came up with what they termed the oral law, the things that they thought would help people to follow the written law, but the oral law wasn't just like suggestions. It actually became entrenched as part of the things that the Pharisees and the Sadducees expected the Jews to follow out and live. It became binding on them, things that they added to the word of God. So we need to be careful ourselves when it comes to the Bible that we don't try to have what, what we would think as a higher theology than the Bible Itself. Notice what he says in verse 19. He says, what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting? Now, if I just ask you guys that question right now, what's your hope or joy or crown of, of boasting, what would your answer be? Jesus, right? And that'd be a good answer. Paul's answer is, you, Thessalonians. For you, he goes on, are our glory and joy. Now, if, if, if we said that to someone today, you'd probably be corrected by one of your brothers or sisters. But it's scriptural language. Now, I, if you're going to use it today, you better make sure how they understand it, right? Because we would have it in a certain context. And you could be making that person to be an idol. But this is very biblical language to speak. It's very biblical language. It is literally right here in the scriptures. And the reason I bring that up is because sometimes I think we as believers, we, try to, we, try, we can put our own little fence 
That's what the, it's called the Pharisees. They, they fenced the law. They fenced the law with the oral law around it. We can end up having our own oral rules and regulations, do's and don'ts, that are completely unbiblical, that are adding to the Word of God. I remember when I first got saved, I was leading people to the Lord, and I was all excited, and I'd be like, man, I, I saved this person over here. And someone pulled me aside, you didn't, you didn't save them. You didn't save them. No, God saved them. <clears throat> That's true, and I knew that at the time. Even as a young believer, I knew God saved them. But I was excited in my zeal to talk to people and then hear, you know, like pouring water on my, on, on my little fire. Not only that, as I read the scriptures, listen to this. In Romans eleven fourteen, he says, In order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. Did you know save there? is in the first person singular. Paul's saying that I would save some of them. Then in 1 Corinthians 9.22, there's a similar passage. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. Now, are we going to take Paul aside? Paul, that, that's, not, that's not the proper language to use. No. It's actually very biblical language. So we need to be careful when we start coming up with rules and ideas and thoughts that are not scriptural. They're not scriptural. We wouldn't say, Paul, that's unbiblical of you to talk about saving someone. Who do you think you are? Jude says a, a similar thing. Sometimes when we go around correcting people on stuff that's not in the Bible, it's not helpful. It's not helpful to believers. It's not helpful to other uh, young believers in the faith. Let's not be holier than the Bible. Let's not do that. That's what the Pharisees did. We need to cut people some slack. I had my hand slapped so many times as a young believer, it was a turnoff in my walk with the Lord. Minor stuff that really didn't matter. I probably didn't phrase something the proper way. I didn't, see, I didn't nuance it just right. <clears throat> I remember complimenting someone on what that person had done for God. And then I was told that it wasn't them. I found that very confusing. They did something great for the Lord, and they're like, no, it's not me. I'm like, well, then who is it? And I understand what they were trying to say, but it was almost like a rebuke to me. Like, if it's, if it's not us, then like, let's just go home and take a nap. Like, I hope we're doing work for the kingdom, and I hope the Lord is using us, right? And receive the compliment. It's a false humility, in my opinion. The same thing goes when people are just talking in everyday language. We have to cut people some grace. I talk, I, I talk with many of you throughout the month, and, 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 you know, probably the nuance of some of the words you're saying is, you know, it's not biblically accurate to a T. I mean, have I ever corrected any of you on that? I don't think so. It's not big enough. Now, if you want to know when I correct someone, come to my life group sometimes. Okay? I let a lot of smaller things go, but if I feel that error on key doctrines or someone could be led astray on something, I will speak up and I'll speak up quite forcefully and bluntly because I do love the truth. I love the truth. All right? I love the truth. But I want to make sure I am upholding the truth and only 
the truth, not my particular need to nitpick or criticize on the minutest of things. Even sometimes when people are praying, I mean, you know, people, even in their prayers sometimes, but I don't go up and, and, uh, and, and correct them afterwards. I, I, I see their heart, and I know exactly what they're saying. You know, dear Father, you are amazing and wonderful, and thank you for dying on the cross for me. I appreciate everything you've done. I love you. Well, they've just espoused heresy, believe it or not, because the Father didn't die on the cross, okay? But I don't think they believe the heresy of what would be called patropassianism, the Father's suffering on the cross, or Sabellianism, all right? I know all those things. That's my role. That's my job. But I don't see it as beneficial to go up. You know, did, did you, I mean, you, are you really saying that? No, they're not really saying that. Now, if I started to talk to them in normal conversation and they started to try to make that as a point or argument, yeah, we'd have a problem, and I would correct it. But I'm talking about on some of these things, we, we need to give each other grace. We need to give each other grace. So let's make sure we don't raise our language above that of the Bible. One of the things that, that Paul's talking about here in regards to affliction is we need to make sure we practice that what we practice is not to sugarcoat the Christian life. Don't sugarcoat the Christian life. Look back at, at verse 4 of chapter 3. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. Now notice this. Paul warned them. This, I mean, he, he goes to Thessalonica, Acts 17. They plant this church. He doesn't get to stay there that long. These, these, these Thess Thessalonians are literally, you know, weeks old at the most, months old. They're baby Christians. But what did Paul do? He warns them of the afflictions to come. He knew it was coming. So it's a huge mistake that we can make with young believers to sugarcoat the Christian life. It can end up, because we want so badly people to, to get saved, we can end up watering down the gospel and giving them a soft gospel, something that's more palatable for them. But that's not what we see in the scriptures. Everything won't be smooth sailing. We can't just pat someone on the, oh, don't worry about it. We can falsely make out the Christian life to be like Disney World. You know, everything's amazing and wonderful and awesome, filled with great surprises, tons of fun. We've got to be honest with people. Honest with people. The Bible says, count what? Count the cost. That's what Jesus says when he gives the parable, right? Count the cost. Guess what that means? There's a cost. Think about it. If there's no cost to count, you wouldn't be told to count it. There's a cost to following Christ. Friends, a false Christianity preaches no affliction. A false Christianity preaches no pain. A false Christianity, it preaches no suffering. And a false Christianity, you know what it promises? A false Christianity, it promises wealth. A false Christianity promises prosperity. A false Christianity promises riches. And people have been told these things. These are lies. Don't you buy into that lie, you'll be disappointed, and your faith will end up being shipwrecked. 
Don't be swayed. The Bible doesn't teach those things. A false Christianity is blasphemy of the highest order, and those teaching it and preaching it and promoting it will have a a high cost, a high cost to pay. Notice what Paul says earlier in verse 3. He says, we are destined for this. What does that mean? Well, one, we can take a couple things from it. We need to prepare because affliction awaits. It's not an if, it's a when. This is part of Christianity, affliction. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 3. Verse 12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be what? Will be persecuted. Then look at Acts 14. Verse 21, Acts 14. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. And look what Paul does. He returns back to them, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith. And then notice this, in saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. He was instructing, discipling, teaching, and admonishing them. And one of the things was there would be tribulations. There would be afflictions. And he was preparing them for it so that they were ready. So we want to prepare, and then we want to stand firm when affliction arrives. Earlier in verse 3, he says that no one be moved by these afflictions. No one be moved by these afflictions. Well, what, no one be moved by these afflictions. Well, how, Paul, how? Because they sent Timothy, it says, verse 2, to establish and exhort you in your faith. Continue to get them grounded. Continue to have them grow. Continue to have them trust in the Lord. Continue to grow in their faith. Affliction will bring a variety of things into your life. Many of you, if not most of you, if not all of you, have faced affliction of some sort. There's challenges, hurts, pain, suffering, sorrow. But you know what else? With affliction, there's spiritual growth. There's opportunities to serve, to trust, humility, the fruit of the Spirit, if you'll handle the affliction biblically. Appointments are a part of life. I want you to see something here. This affliction of Satan affected a lot of people. Reflect on it for a second. The entire church at Thessalonica was affected. We sometimes think Satan's attacks on us only affect us and us alone. It's limited in scope. No. Satan uses the largest weapons he can to affect the largest number of people that he can. I mean, why use a small bullet when you got a larger bullet available? 
And why use a bullet when a grenade is available? And why use a grenade when a missile is available? He'll use the largest weapon he can, and he'll aim it so it affects the most people possible. I was reading earlier this week, and this, this little sentence caught my eye in what I was reading. <clears throat> it says, The devil is but God's master fencer. You know, fencing, right? The devil is but God's master fencer to teach us to handle our weapons. Think about that, right? Because we have weapons. Ephesians 6, we have the armor of God. We have weapons. The devil is but God's master fencer to teach us to handle our weapons. God's like, I'm, I'm going to train them and teach them to use their spiritual weapons. I got the, I got the best teacher over here. <laughs> His name's Satan. You're going to learn really quickly how to use those weapons and how to yield them properly. Even Satan can't operate outside the sphere of our sovereign God. Amen? And we have to remember that in the midst of affliction, God is still working. Think of it from the Thessalonians' viewpoint. Paul had committed to coming back to them shortly, right? They're waiting, and they're waiting, and they're waiting. And what happened? Nothing. I mean, they just can't send them a text or shoot them an email. I mean, they don't know. Maybe They thought maybe Paul, Paul had abandoned them. So they kept waiting and waiting and waiting. And then who shows up? The Apostle Paul ready to help them and encourage them? No. Timothy. It's probably a little bit of a letdown for the Thessalonians. <laughs> They're expecting Paul, and, and they, get, they get Timothy. But how was God using that affliction for them? One, he was showing them not to put their hope in man, even an apostle. And how was God using that affliction for Paul? Well, Paul was by himself. He sent Timothy off. Maybe Paul needed a break. Maybe he needed refreshment. Maybe he needed some time with the Lord. Timothy was up for the task, whether Paul knew it or not, whether Timothy knew it or not, but God knew it. And how was God using that affliction for Timothy? Timothy was by himself and learning what God wanted him to learn. And here the Thessalonians were by themselves during this time and still remaining faithful and learning what God wanted them to learn. See, our afflictions can test us. They can challenge us. Friends, be stretched in your faith in the midst of affliction. Regardless of what it looks like, be willing to be stretched in your faith. During an affliction, God is actively working. He's there. Friends, take, like, pause for a moment on that and take some comfort and hope in that. In the midst of your affliction, God's working. It didn't catch him by surprise. And our afflictions make us depend on the one above. Think about Timothy being stretched. You know, a round trip <clears throat> from Athens to Macedonia, that would have taken like three or four weeks plus the time that he was there at Thessalonica. Time that, Paul, that, time that Timothy was apart from his mentor, Paul. You're like, well, okay, I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure Paul 
had trained him and spent all this time with him. Well, actually, let's, let's check this out just for a brief moment so we can see how prepared Timothy was. Look at Acts chapter 16. Verse 1, Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. That's, that's their introduction to one another, Acts 16. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for, the observant, or for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So he, he joins the mission trip, so to speak. He joins the journey. That's Acts 16. Acts 17, turn there. That's them in Thessalonica. This is them coming to the Thessalonians to preach the word to them. So, Timothy joins them, and, and, and in just one chapter, they're already at Thessalonica, doing ministry, planning a church, seeing people get saved. And then a few months later, Paul sends Timothy back. So he didn't have years and years and years of training. He didn't have any type of, of, of degrees or letters behind his name. But he had Jesus with him. He had the spirit inside of him. And that was more than sufficient for the work that God called him to do. That's not to say it wasn't a challenge for Timothy. Get on the ship, travel there. He had to walk by faith. He had to trust the Lord. He had to step out. Timothy was stretched. Paul was stretched. The Thessalonians were stretched. And you'll be stretched. I mean, do you see, friends, how the Lord uses even the thwarting of Satan to continue the advancement of the kingdom? For ministry to continue to keep building up his saints. I remember when I was about 25, uh, the youth group that I <clears throat> helped lead with Tim Ward, I was kind of his right-hand man. We'd have about 20 or 40 youth each year go on a ski trip for a weekend. And at the last minute, literally almost like the day that we were leaving, he had a family emergency and he couldn't go. And he's like, Here's the keys. <laughs> no, I mean, what do you do at that point? Cancel the trip? No, you, you just you trust the Lord. The Lord knew it was coming. He knew it was going to happen. And you go and trust and depend a whole lot on the Lord during that time and that trip. That was my Timothy moment. I had to decide if I was going to do the ministry. The Lord stepped before me. And needed me to do. And God will give us Timothy moments where he wants to stretch us in our faith, where he wants us to step out and minister to other people. What do we do? We humble ourselves before the Lord and implore his help. We trust him. We walk by faith. Some of what we see going on 
with the Thessalonians in the affliction, actually not just some of it, all of it, is the Romans 8.28 principle at work. Romans 8.28. I want you to see it. I know many of you know it, but I want you to see it for yourselves. Romans 8.28. And we know. All right, some of you need to underline that we know. We know that this is, this is established fact, friends. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. And we do need to point something out here that's rather important. This promise is for believers. It's for believers. We know that for those who love God. Okay, that's the condition, really. Loving God, that's the condition. All things work together for good. I think it's important to point out, I pointed it out before, it doesn't say God takes bad things and makes them good. He says he takes the bad and works them for the good. He can take awful, horrible situations and redeem them. That's probably how we'd put it today. He can take them and use them for good. I could give you story after story after story in my life and other people's lives how he's taken tough, horrible tragedies and used them to further his kingdom. He takes those and he redeems those. But the promise is for those who love God. The promise is for his children. That means that whatever Satan does, whatever he might throw your way, God will use it for good. He'll use it for good. That's what the verse says. That doesn't mean the thing Satan does is good. What does Joseph say to his brothers? What you meant for evil, God used that situation. You've thrown me into a pit. Telling me, all, you, basically, I mean, that's human trafficking. It's the, probably the first instance there. They, they human trafficked their own brother. What you meant for evil, God used for good. Took an awful, horrible situation and used it, I mean, to basically save the known world at the time. If you follow out the story, God used it for his glory. So whatever affliction comes, one, it hasn't caught God by surprise. It might catch you by surprise. It hasn't caught God, God by surprise. Two, you've got to be prepared. It's coming. It's not an if, it's a, it's a when. It's coming. Be prepared. Put on that armor. And then whatever Satan does, God will use it for good. And he's going to see you through that situation every step of the way. Friends, you might not feel like it, but there's a lot of things I don't always feel. We can't be de dependent on our emotions we depend on truth. We depend on truth. Emotions, subjective by their very nature. Truth, objective by its very nature. We depend on objectiveness, the thing outside of. We, we are the subjects. That's why it's called subjective truth, because we're a subject and we're making a proclamation about a particular thing that is just our opinion. The thing outside itself is the object. Just think of like grammar, subject, verb, object. The object is the thing outside of you that has truth in and of itself. 
regardless of what you think about it. Same thing with our emotions. Those are just for us. Two people can experience the same thing and have completely different emotions. Just think of a roller coaster, right? Some people be freaking out and screaming the whole time. Some people just, you know, and, and eating it up and enjoying it. Same experience, different emotions. Okay, but when it comes to God, when it comes to his truth, doesn't change. Objective. It's outside of you. That's what we depend on. On what he's done. On what he's said. On who he is. So whatever affliction comes, God will walk you through it. He'll be with you. He'll sustain you. He's already strengthened you by his spirit to walk through that. And he will humble you. He will humble you with your affliction to remind you to depend on God and God alone. If everything was all great and and fruity and just parties all the time, it, it honestly wouldn't be for our better. God will see us through. Satan can try his best to thwart God, thwart the gospel, thwart God's children, thwart you. He will fail. What did, he, what did Jesus say? Jesus himself. The gates of hell, what? Will not prevail. He also said, you don't hear this quoted as often, but it's, it's in the Gospels. Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning. I saw Satan fall like lightning. You guys need to write that one down, but y'all don't know it. <clears throat> That's kind of important to me. Jesus sees Satan fall like lightning. You might want to remember that one. I mean, what's the picture you're, we're getting? Gates of hell don't prevail. Jesus sees Satan. I mean, his, his, his doom has already been written, literally. Read the book of Revelation. His fate is sealed. He just, he just gets to throw his fiery darts at us, right? I mean, it's like a, a, a wounded soldier who knows the battle is lost, still taking his best shot that he possibly can. Friends, we, we, we have the victory, all right? If you're in Jesus, we have the victory. Satan's going to keep shooting those darts, but we have armor. We've got armor. So let, let's, let's put that armor on. Let's fight the fight for Jesus, for his glory, come what may. Amen. Let's pray as the worship team comes on up. Lord, you've given us armor to fight the spiritual war. You've warned us that it's coming. You've prepared us through your word, through, through our brothers and sisters who encouraged us, instructed us, corrected us, even rebuked us. Like, Lord, you've prepared us, and, and you've told us it's coming, and let us stand firm when the affliction strikes us. Let us stand firm. And God, even in your mercy and grace, it says when the righteous fall, and and we will get knocked over at times, we have been. We haven't always stood the firmest. It says the righteous gets back up. Because you're there, Lord, lifting us up. So thank you that it's not dependent upon us, ultimately, to fight this war. 
You go before us. You're a banner over us. You give us your spirit to do the battle. Thank you, Father. We love you. Amen.